It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. Guess what? Carlos Correa is not a New York man. <laughs> Boy, that whole Carlos Correa four-hour extravaganza with something else. If you were on Twitter Tuesday night and I went to sleep, I got to tell you, I was very, very tired. So I went to sleep and I woke up at about 1130 because I wake up every two hours. Those are my sleeping habits. And I wake up to text messages from Pete Hoffman from the Mets text chat that I'm in, letting me know that Ken Rosenthal has dropped the bomb. The Mets are in on Carlos Correa. And when I read it, I still didn't believe it. Because there was no way in my mind the Mets would be involved in a long-term contract pursuit of Carlos Correa. So as I was you know, laying in bed, half in a bag, I thought to myself, the only way they'd go after him is on a short-term big money deal. And logic says Carlos Correa doesn't want that because he just had a short-term big money deal. And he just opted away from $35 million. So look, if... Steve Cohen was able to go to Scott Boris and say, listen, man, we're going to give you a one-year deal at $40 million, so you're getting a pay raise. I'm all for it. For one year, with the huge tax number, bring him in, move him to third base, let's go. But I never thought, A, the Mets would, or I would, give him a 10-year contract. And that's what he was looking for, and that's clearly what he was going to get. He obviously got more than that, but between what Trey Turner got years-wise and Xander Bogart's got years-wise... Even when the story came out, my thought was, there's no way they're involved in that negotiation. Short-term, yes. Long-term, no way. So I had that thought for about five to ten minutes, and I passed out my own drool. Then I woke up a few hours later to see that he signed with the Giants. (laughs) So Pete and I had no time to record a special Carlos Correa podcast a special carlos correa rico bronia because he came and he went and it was all done in like three hours yeah we felt like the san francisco giants when they had Aaron judge (laughs) pretty much yeah but listen i never really thought that carlos correa was really gonna happen either like you said it never especially when the rumors started coming out wasn't like oh my god we're gonna get him i thought it was a nice idea i did think it would be cool but when I saw the numbers, I'm like, yeah, we're not stupid. We're not going to make that move. And I'm okay with it. We move on, get J.D. Martinez. I, I don't even think, and we'll get to J.D. And we'll, This episode will be a lot about offense. So we will kind of go in and look at specific guys they can add and how they can improve this team offensively and what they need to improve about this team offensively. So that'll be our main focus. Uh, but before we get there, did you ever think it would have been wise to give Correa a 10-year contract. Forget 13 years. Forget that. That's off the top. You knew is what he was looking for, considering the years that Turner got and the years that Seager got last year and the years that Bogarts got and even the years Lindor got last year, that his ultimate ask was going to be for a mega contract. Were you ready to give that to Carlos Correa? I mean, I kind of was, but I don't think I was going to go as high as 10. I thought maybe we can do it for eight. I guess that's where I was like reasonably thinking in the back of my head. Like, if it's an eight-year deal, the AAV wasn't that bad, to be honest. And I'm like, we can live with that. Give an opt-out in there somewhere in the mix. If he, if he wants that, no trade clause. But to give him the opt-out, I feel like that might trigger something, too. Like, hey, you know, if you think you're that freaking good in three years, opt-out and go somewhere else. That's fine. 
I think we're learning about Steve Cohen, and I think he likes to have flexibility. And this team has a lot of financial flexibility over the next couple of years. Obviously, Lindor is going to be here for a while. We know Brandon Nimmo is going to be here for a while. And eventually, there'll be other guys here for a while. I mean, I'm hopeful Pete Alonso will have a long-term contract. Shohei Otani will have a long-term contract soon. Dude, um, if they whiff on if they whiff on Otani, this thing is just going to be a huge waste of time for this. No, year. it's not because the following year, Juan Soto's a free agent. They'll oh, go get hey, him. Oh, sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah. That's the way you have to treat it. So, one thing I do want to address that I thought was really, really interesting, and if you haven't seen this, uh, consider me your mailman on this because I'm a sucker, and by being a sucker, I pay for a lot of annoying services such as ESPN Insider, such as The Athletic. So ESPN released an article on Wednesday in which it was a real specific account of Aaron Judge and how he ended up re-signing with the New York Yankees. Now, this is not a Yankee podcast, so let's get right to the reason I'm bringing this up. There was a paragraph about the Mets, specifically the Mets' interest in Aaron Judge. Uh, There are a lot of Mets fans out there, Pete is certainly one of them, who had brought up many times why they're not going after Judge. Why they're not going after Judge? Why they're not going after Aaron Judge? We know that SNY's Andy Martino, big friend of the show, uh, made the comment that the Mets wouldn't go after him out of respect for the New York Yankees. Well, I'm going to read to you a paragraph. This is from ESPN Insider. I don't even know if Hoff's heard about this yet. Specifically, their thoughts about Aaron Judge and a potential pursuit of Aaron Judge while he was a free agent. And now this is from the Mets side of things. This is from Buster Olney's reporting in an ESPN article. So Got it. uh, it's what he heard about the Mets' interest in Aaron Judge. And you tell me how you, how you guys take this, all right? The New York Mets discussed Judge in their internal evaluations as they prepared for the offseason. And they met with Odell. Odell is the agent of Judge at the GM meetings. All right. But they informed Judge's representatives that their offseason priority would be the pursuit of starting pitching. And if these holes were addressed and Judge was still unsigned, the two sides might pick up those threads. But the expectation within the Mets organization after the GM meetings was that Judge would be off the board by the time the rotation was filled. And generally, that's how it played out, as Justin Verlander agreed to terms with the Mets a couple of days before Judge signed, and then the Mets subsequently signed veterans Jose Quintana and Kodai Senga. So based on this reporting, the Mets met with Judge's agent and said, look, our priority is replacing Jake. Once we're done doing that, we may circle back. (laughs) Your thoughts on that, Pete? Um, I think there's a little cover-up here, personally speaking. Yes. Because of the other um, outings basically saying that, you know, Cohen is not going to go for judge because out of respect to Steinbrenner, I think that had to be kiboshed. So they put this out there. Realistically, even the Mets knew that at that point in time he was going to be signed, and it was never in the cards. I get it. But I think this is just just, – this is just – to fluff it up a little bit, but like, look, we were gonna, we were gonna do it. We were, we were gonna, we were gonna get there. It, it, it's, it's so weird because I understand why the rotation was a major priority. It's simple math on this. The Mets only had one free agent from their lineup, and that was Brandon Nemo. You know, everybody else is under contract, so there was not a lot of flux when it came to the Mets lineup outside of the decision around Brandon Nemo. There was a ton of flux with this rotation. No, you had three-fifths of the rotation, and really four-fifths before they made the decision on Carlos Carrasco, but three-fifths of the rotation were free agents. Chris Bassett, Taiwan Walker, Jacob DeGrom. So obviously, the rotation was something that they needed to address. They need to either re-sign everybody or replace each guy. We saw what they did. They replaced each guy. But what doesn't add up to me is when you're an elite-level free agent like Aaron Judge, you're not a guy who you tell to them, hey, we're going to circle back once we fix these other things. You make that guy a priority. So if you have interest in Aaron Judge, despite questions on your team otherwise, you don't tell his agent, just give us a few days. We're more worried about Jose Quintana. Like, that doesn't make any sense. No, and then especially on top of it, the rumors coming from Morosi hard was – Aaron Judge is signing 
before the winter meetings are over. They're saying we'll circle back after it's over. Everyone knows he's going to be signed. So what are we really talking about here? And look, here's the truth on this. So the crux of the article is Aaron Judge had three choices. To go home and play for the Giants, his childhood team, to take the money and go play for the Padres, or to continue his legacy and play for the Yankees. As much as we adore Steve Cohen and we're Met fans and we love the Mets, the only appeal the Mets were going to have was to pay him the most money. They were going to have to go the Padres route of saying, here's 10 years, $400 million. And I don't know if that was ever going to be enough. So I, I, I don't necessarily believe the story that Cohen had respect for the Yankees. I think it was more, he kind of knew the deal. He knew that signing Aaron Judge was just an unrealistic thing. Maybe he didn't want to give him 10 years also, by the way. Guy's 31 years old. You know, he, he may say that's not a smart investment. So the investment man in him could say, A, that's not smart. And the other side would be, I don't want to lose him. Because one thing about Steve Cohen so far, through three off seasons, who has he gone after hard, realistically, and not gotten? Think about it. Who have they said, this is our target and not gotten? You want to give me Trevor Bauer? I mean, give me other examples. Because they didn't go after Jacob DeGrom. Like, that's just the reality we all have to face. They really didn't want him back. They may should have signed JT Ramuto three years ago, but they made a decision not to. So I think there's also that, hey, we don't want to go after someone hard and then fail and not get him. The only person that was even remotely close to that is Ben Correa. He popped up out of the woodworks for five minutes. That's been it. Oh, the Mets are interested. But other than that, like if you see a name attached and the Mets, they usually get signed. And I, mean, I don't Bur- think they and I don't think they were going after Correa. I've got two theories about Carlos Correa. Number yeah. one. I think they would have absolutely engaged on a short-term deal and said, you know what? We love that because that's basically what the Mets have been doing. And I think they may have given Scott Boris a favor and said, all right, Scotty, you helped keep the AAV low on Brandon Nemo. We appreciate it. Let's drum up interest that we're intrigued to get the Giants to just seal the deal because the Giants had to sign them. You know, whether it's a good signing or not, that's for a, a San Francisco Giants podcast. They could call that the Marvin Bernard if they want. We have the Rico Bronya. They have the Marvin Bernard. I like Marvin Bernard. The JT Snow, whatever they want to call it on their podcast. They could debate or not if that was a good contract or not. It, considering the hype of the offseason, the Giants needed to walk away with somebody. Now, let's get to this lineup because I think a common belief, and you've certainly had it, is that they've got to get better offensively. So let's go a little deeper on this. The Mets scored a lot of runs last year. We all know that. You know, we went over this last time. I think they finished in the top five runs scored for the first time in 30 years. But they had an issue at two positions. There were two positions on the diamond in which the New York Mets offensive production was beyond pathetic. We'll start with the obvious, which was catcher. Tomas Nito started 88 games. James McCann started 54 games. And then you've got Patrick Mazika, who started 21, Michael Perez, five, Francisco Alvarez, two. Bottom line is bulk of the offense behind the plate was carried by Nito and James McCann. They hit a combined five home runs. They drove in a combined 43 runs. They had an OPS of 569. Dude, this was pathetic. Amongst the 30 teams in Major League Baseball, the Mets ranked in 29th, 29th in home runs by catchers. If you want to go to OPS, they were 26th. So I want to start there. As good as the defense was of Tomas Nito, and we all love him, and he was relatively clutch, the offensive production behind the plate was beyond bad. They are naturally upgrading that right off the top with Francisco Alvarez. I can't tell you what his final numbers would be, Pete, but do you agree he will hit higher than 217? Do you agree with that? I I think he'll run into more balls, and when it comes to the power, there's no question. I mean, they hit six home runs from the catching position, and the reason I'm not saying seven is because the seventh was hit by Alvarez (laughs) when he finally got a chance to play. So... 
I'm not saying this is the magic elixir. I just want to be smart about this discussion and kind of look at how they can improve offensively and how they already are improving offensively and then where they may go backwards offensively. Catcher has to be better. And assuming they go with the game plan of Alvarez catching at least half the time, I've been a proponent of half the time and then DH half the time. Look, I'm open to him catching all the time. If the guy can catch and he has a good chemistry with this veteran rotation, which is going to be key, he's 20 years old. He's catching 40-year-olds and 39-year-olds and 34-year-olds. But if he can develop a good chemistry with this staff and throw out runners, because I think that's going to be a bigger kind of impact in baseball in 2023 because of the bigger bases, then even if he's a quarter of the player we think he is, the New York Mets will improve incredibly at the catching position offensively. Now, it's funny because you say you see him catching half the games. I'm just – I'm not saying there's a huge concern because I'm all about offense. Like, I'm like, hey, listen, if the guy's got a bat – Put find the way to get him on the field. I don't care. And you do have two pitchers in Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer that I think they could pitch to my 12-year-old. You know what I mean? Right, like it, right. I think they're that good. So maybe he's going to learn on the job that way. But there's got to be a bit of concern. Like we saw, just not to relate it to like a Yankee thing, but we saw Gary Sanchez for years suck behind the plate. Is that realistic that we can, Mets fans can visualize 81 games from Francisco Alvarez behind the plate? I think he's got to play. I think the only way you get better is playing. And I think what was concerning about Gary Sanchez is that he got worse, is that he went backwards. And everything I've heard about Alvarez is as young as he is, he works his ass off. And I think you just have to catch guys. You got to catch Verlander. You got to catch Max Scherzer. And then you got to hope he's putting the effort in and he's only going to get better and better. Tomas Nito was a really good catcher. Um, offensively, look, I can't make his numbers look good, but I think if you watch the Mets, like we all do, you know, that Tomas Nito would run into a clutch hit every once in a while. James McCann would never do that. That would never happen with him. But with Tomas Nito, occasionally he'd run into a big hit. So I think as this season progresses, depending on the growth of Alvarez behind the plate, that'll dictate how much more Tomas Nito plays. The other thing that may dictate it is the production you're getting out of DH, which is what we should get into right now. Because the other aspect of the New York Mets, and I I went over these numbers the other day, and I had to go over it twice because they were so freaking bad when you look at them and you say, no, that, that that's not possible. No, they you're telling me from guys who are everyday DHs, they got 10 home runs. That's all they got. And it's true. The production at DH was awful. Here they are. There were 18 home runs. The reason that number is higher is because 12, I'm sorry, six of the 18 home runs they got from the DH position came from Pete Alonzo when he was having a DH day, which I'm sorry, I don't count as the DH position. Because you know why? Because on those days where Pete Alonzo was DHing, you probably got dick from first base. (laughs) I mean, am I wrong? No, like all you did was flip flop who's getting hits and who's not getting hits. That's all you did. Oh, so Pete Alonso's DH great. Dom Smith's playing first base and doing nothing. So they got six home runs out of Pete. He was great. And the other guy who produced as much as you guys want to hate on him is Daniel Vogelback. I mean, he played 49 games as a Met, hit six home runs and at an 853 OPS. And it was 98% of it was obviously against right-handed pitching. Because Daniel Vogelback, here's the knock on him. Here's the truth. He not only can't hit lefties, you can't put him up against the lefty. Like, he has such horrific at-bats against any kind of left-hand pitching that the way you build your team, if Vogelbach's going to be your DH most of the time, you best prepare that if you're facing a team with lefties out of the bullpen, his fat ass is coming out of the game as soon as that lefty's in. Because he can't hit him. You know, you want to give him an at-bat, he's going to die. Like, he's just going to strike out on four pitches and look meek. But Vogelback was good. That's only 49 games. J.D. Davis, remember him? He's good now. As soon as he went to the Giants, he was good. But in the 45 games he played with the Mets, it's actually not as pathetic as you'd think. 745 OPS, four home runs, 17 RBIs. Not good, but not quite as bad as Dominic Smith who in 16 games had a 625 OPS, zero home runs. Or Darren Ruff, 12 
Darren Ruff's numbers are rough, bro. bro. I, I'm not even double entendering it. It's just bad. Darren Ruff in 12 games had a 345 OPS with no home runs and two RBIs. And then Mark Vientos didn't do anything in his 11 games. So when you add this all together, the New York Mets got no production out of DH. That's the thing that needs to change. And that's the thing that I think we'd all agree has to be the what they address. That's what they need to address. Now, here are your internal options just to get it on the table. You want to play Britt Beatty, Eduardo Escobar, third base. The other guy is a DH option. Against lefties, though, Brett Beatty's not an option. I mean, Brett Beatty's going to get some opportunities to face lefties. Eduardo Escobar, though, is probably going to be your third baseman against lefties because we saw how well he hit last year as a right-hand hitter. But that doesn't help you at DH. Is it Mark Vientos? You want to give him an opportunity? That's fine. But you need somebody off the top coming into this season that you can rely on. So let's go through freaking names. Let's discuss it. Let's start with your guy, the guy who I know you want, who is J.D. Martinez. So, look, J.D. hits lefties. Last year, he kind of had a a down season as he gets older. He's 35 years old. He's going to be 36 this year. But he had a 998 OPS against lefties last year. So the one thing he did well is he mashed left-handed pitching. My issues with J.D. Martinez, and I'll let you sell me because you're more pro him than I. I'm not against him, by the way. I was all for trading him last year. I'm just calling out the issues I have. Number one, he didn't play the field at all last year. So in terms of versatility, which you know Buck Showalter wants to have, and I don't blame him, he doesn't really offer a lot of it. If you stick him in the outfield, you're holding your breath. If you're teaching him to play a little first base or he's playing a little first base, you're holding your breath. And you're only doing that in a, in a perfect world to get Pete Alonso an off day. And hopefully Pete Alonso doesn't need that many off days. J.D. Martinez last year in totality had his lowest OPS in nine years. His power numbers completely disappeared. That was in a contract year. You know, you're big on the whole. It's a contract year. Well, in a contract year, J.D. Martinez was as bad as we've seen him in a long time. He is 35 years old, turning 36. He made $19 million last year, so it's safe to say J.D. is looking for something very similar or in that range this year. Knowing the the fall of J.D. Martinez that we've seen, why is he the option as the guy you want to add to this D.H. spot? Because when I look at professional hitters, and that's what he is at this point in time, he you're right. He's not going to be a fielder. Maybe you could put him – maybe he sees the field 15 games. That's a positive. I take that as a positive. If he gets 15, 20 games on the field, that means you could DH him at least another 80 times. That gives him almost 100 games played. I don't expect J.D. Martinez to play 158 games. That's the first thing. You're gonna you're gonna cut down his game same way as you're gonna cut down on Scherzer and 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 uh, and Verlander's innings. So I need him for important situations. I need him for DH. I need his bat to be lively, and he's the one guy that even though he had 16 home runs last year and his OPS was low, so all these numbers are low. He's done it before. He's had a history. He's had multiple years of 40 home runs. I don't expect 40, but if they give me 20, I guarantee he'll get 15 to 20. I can't guarantee some of these other guys that are available. I can't guarantee that Eduardo Escobar is going to be able to fill in that, that DH role and do give the same production that J.D. Martinez will. I know that J.D. Martinez can do that, even if it's limited. Yeah, the... The worry is he's 35, 36, and maybe last year is the beginning of that decline that's coming. Obviously, J.D. Martinez's resume makes him an easy choice. You know, as a guy who could hit 30 home runs and driving 100 runs, he is the perfect guy for this lineup if he's the guy he was most of his career. But I think as you start to get older, there's always that concern that this is a decline. Now, 35, 36 is also not a death sentence. Is it possible J.D. Martinez has a bounce-back season? Yeah. I can't rule that out. I mean, that's I guess that's the intriguing part of him. I also think that his resume is of a player that doesn't need to be just one half of a platoon. 
And I think the way you pay him, he wouldn't be one half of a platoon. So what I mean by that is if they sign J.D. Martinez, I think Daniel Vogelbach's on the trade market. Uh, or Daniel Vogelbach is just a bench player. Like as good as Vogelbach is against righties, and we have to acknowledge as much as some Met fans may not like him, that he mashed righties last year. He did it with the Mets. His numbers are his numbers. You know, the eye test may tell you something else, but he produced. J.D. Martinez is accomplished enough where if you believe he can be the guy he was two years ago, he DHs against everybody. And he doesn't just DH against lefties despite the splits that were favorable for him a year ago. And, and on top of that, too, we talk about contract. He's not looking for a four- or five-year commitment. He may be looking for one year to try to bolster up another or That's all I'm deal. giving him, by the way, Pete. One oh, year. Well, you could give him a two-year deal with an opt-out type of thing. Hopefully, he bounces back and whatever. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Because, again, we have a very small window anyway. I, I, I give him two if it was a reasonable, like, say, $35 million for two yeah, years. If he's, obviously, if he's the guy he was two years ago, it's easy. And those other marks against him, you sort of ignore. Like, ideally, I want a guy who can play the field. And not just 10 or 15 times a year. Because look at the Met roster construction right now. They have Starling Marte in right field. They have Brandon Immo in center. They have Mark Hanna in left. And Jeff McNeil can easily shift to the outfield. Dude, that's it. Like, they need to add another outfielder. Now, maybe the answer is someone we're not talking about. And adding a legit, like, Tim LaCastro kind of outfielder. Just a depth guy. As opposed to your DH also being an outfield option. I just think as we go down this list, and there's plenty of other guys I'm going to get to. There are other guys that can play the field more confidently. My guy, the guy I've been pushing, and I had a caller mention it to Carton and I today, and I yelled at the person. And I said, no, that's for the Rico Bronia. Okay, we're not talking about this on the fan right now because also Craig has no idea who this player is. And that, of course, is Brandon Drury, who Brandon Drury is so weird, man, because he was a good little baseball player. He gets traded to the Yankees and then sucks and is awful. It's like 150, can't stay healthy. Yankees dump him to Toronto for Jay Happ. And Brandon Drury looks like he's on his way out of baseball. Mets bring him in a year ago and has a really good year for us coming off the bench. We don't think much of it when the Mets don't bring him back because we're like, ah, it's Brandon Drury, whatever. And then last year has a really good season. A good season with the Cincinnati Reds eventually gets traded to San Diego. I know he didn't hit a lot in his brief time in San Diego, but put together the best year of his career. Guy had a career year, and he's not old. He's 30. He's going to be 31 in the midst of the season, so he's in the prime of his career. He had an 813 OPS, highest of his career. He mashed lefties, so he kind of fits that criteria. An OPS of 955 against lefties. He had 28 home runs. He had 28 home runs. And almost half of them were against lefties, which is crazy because you're obviously not getting nearly as many at-bats against lefties as righties. And then the other big thing for Brandon Drury is his ability to play everywhere, whether it's third base, whether it's second base, whether it's the outfield, which I think means something. You never know who's going to get hurt. You never know the injuries that are going to happen. And then also just DH him. I, I get J.D. Martinez's resume is far more impressive. Can't deny that. But in terms of what have you done for me lately and who can produce for me in 2023, I'm enamored by Brandon Jury. You tell me the negative. Well, I, I, just to go re rewind a little bit, you talked about how he went to the Yankees and kind of just was injury prone. I think he had like a really bad eye issue. Yeah, like I, think right. I think you're like right. There was some severe stuff that that's, I thought he was going to be out of baseball because of that. But you fast forward, he did return. But again, like, I hate to go back to the resume stuff all the time. He hasn't done it enough. He just really hasn't. He had one year of 20-plus home runs. That's it. He's that, That's all he has to but live But it was this of. past season. It wasn't I, like five years ago. I know. And, you know, like, we, we, you know, sometimes you talk about, like, Carlos Rodon, right? Like, the last two years have been really freaking good. No one's going to take it away. But the years prior... He wasn't that all that great. So did he figure it out later? Does he does he get it now? Is he is it, with age? He's like you know fine wine. Now he's got it. I don't know if I could trust him because the negative with Drury is I think he's going to want a bigger deal. I don't think he's going to want like this one or two year deal. And if we're not willing to give a Carlos Correa now, I understand eight years or hundred ten years is way too much. 
am I going to be giving Brendan Drury a four or five year deal? I no. don't think I can trust that. No, 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 no. I, I would not be interested in a long term deal. I wouldn't. And I, I don't know if he's really going to get that. You know, I don't know if that's out there for him, despite coming off a really good season. You know, obviously, price tag changes a lot of this. And with price tag, it's more the amount of years than it is how much money. Because at this point on a one-year deal, you know, you pay the guy $25 million, it's just running up Stevie's tax bill. That's all it's doing. And he's shown a willingness to, to spend. He has. This year, he's going to go on. It honestly doesn't make a difference. This year, it, it, he's already over. Just keep on going. As long as you're not having a billion-dollar payroll, I think he's okay with it. But he yeah. might even go that high. A couple of guys I want to get to just because I rule it out a little bit is the left-handed bats because I just don't think they need a left-handed bat. So Michael Conforto is a name that's been mentioned a lot. I have a tough time believing that Boris would want Conforto to come to the Mets only because it admits that you effed up not taking the qualifying offer a year ago. So it's a bad loss. Now, maybe Conforto wants to come back, even though he wouldn't be guaranteed an everyday job. I think the fit with a left-handed batter doesn't make sense. Now, if you're bringing in a lefty and essentially making that guy your left fielder, and maybe you're looking at that as an upgrade over Marcana, or you're treating Marcana more as a fourth outfielder and saying, hey, look, you're going to play a lot because Starling Marte is going to need his days, and Brandon Nimmo's not playing 150 games again, and whoever we just signed to play left field is not going to play all the time. Like, I'm not against something like that because who would be against depth? Right now, the Mets don't have a lot of outfield depth unless you're moving Jeff McNeil to the outfield. Uh, emotionally, would it be cool to give Michael Conforto another shot here? I like Conforto. There's some Mets fans that like hate his guts. I, I just don't think the fit is that perfect. To me, it's more I want a right-handed bat who fits that DH role more than anything. So Conforto, I have a bunch of issues with him, and I don't hate him, but I think that Mets fans – you know, it's kind of almost like a Nimmo thing where Nimmo is a New York Met. Like, everything about him screams New York Met, and I don't think he'd be the same player anywhere else. I don't feel the same way about Conforto, but I think Mets fans feel that he's a New York Met. I don't think – I think he's got, like, a sour taste, or I have a sour taste in my mouth with him because he kind of had, like, that last like – the last team he was on was a 77-1 team, right? And it felt like he left with guys like Strowman and some other guys that were, I don't want to say like bad juju, but when he left, the team got better. And that, that, that's, yeah. and there, was, there was a whole clubhouse thing that was there. And I heard some stories about Conforto that were like leaning towards, not saying that he was a negative, but he also wasn't this leader, wasn't this positive guy. So I don't really know if I really want him. Plus, I don't, I think he was overrated. I know he had some seasons where he hit power. But too inconsistent for me, and I, I just don't think that he's needed, especially if you mean a fourth outfielder. We're going to spend too much again, he, money, he was, too much money for him. He was a really, really streaky player, and I think what hurts him is that his last year here in 2021, in a contract year of all years, he was bad. Like that's just that's just the way to describe it. He was a bad baseball player in his final year here, and you know the Mets obviously collapsed. You know, the fact they finished under 500 is crazy considering all the time they spent in first place. So I think a lot of the negativity towards Conforto is that in his last year here, he was not good. In 2020, for a short period of time, he was one of their better offensive players. In 2019, he had a really good season. In 2018, eh, it was okay. In 2017, when he played, he was awesome. Like Michael Conforto was mostly a good Met. But I think the last taste in our mouth of him was a guy that was just bad, was a guy that just had a terrible, terrible season. Uh, the other left-handed bats I'll mention, because they're out there, they're available, and they're pros, Matt Carpenter, who had a great run with the Yankees. Again, I think if you bring in Carpenter, it, it makes you just trade Daniel Vogelbach, which is not the worst thing in the world. Daniel Vogelbach, I think, has value. I do. I think he, you know, he's still relatively young. He doesn't make a lot of money. He's making like a buck five this year, one point five million. There are teams that could use left-handed pop. The Chicago White Sox being one of which. So, I, look, I could put together a fake trade, and maybe you'd be into it, like Vogelbach and James McCann for, I don't know, Liam Hendricks. <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> I don't know if the White Sox would do that, but I would do that. They get Not their catcher. Really. 
Yeah. No, they would not be doing that for Liam Hendricks, even I, though they, I don't know where they're going right now. They're looking to move Liam Hendricks, though. And McCann's contract is less than what Hendricks makes. McCann's making, I think, 12, and Liam's making 15, 16 million. So they'd save a bunch of money on that. But I think if you traded Vogel back, bringing in a guy like Matt Carpenter makes sense. Michael Brantley is a real good professional hitter. I The problem with Brantley, who I love, is A, he's getting older, B, doesn't stay healthy, and C, I want to add pop. Yeah, and I'm usually not the guy that says that, you know, just get me the professional hitter. But I think this lineup needs pop. It's why Andrew Benintendi, who's still out there to play left field, and it's kind of what I mentioned earlier with Canna becomes your fourth outfielder who plays a lot. He's a good pro, Benintendi, gets on base, hits for a high average. That's not what this lineup needs, though. This lineup needs pop. And Raymel Tapia, a guy you mentioned, uh, I think, last week, another guy. But again, all lefties. They don't fit. If you go back to the right-hand hitters that match lefties that fit, Adam Duval is a really interesting player. He won a gold glove a couple of years ago, so we know his defense is solid. He had 38 home runs in 2021, and he mashes lefties. Uh, He did not have a good year last year, and maybe that'll be the turnoff, and he doesn't hit for a very high average, and he strikes out a lot, but he was a real big part of that brave push to winning a championship after they got him from the Marlins at the trade deadline. Uh, he's a slugger who can play everywhere in the outfield. I mean, like Adam Duvall, would that be a, would that fit the right-handed bat that they need to add? You know, like there's still too many questions behind it. Like it's, it, there definitely is pop there, but it's almost like a Joey Gallo from the right side. <laughs> Am I but wrong? They could use a Joey Gallo from the right side. Nobody could use a Joey Gallo from any side. Like I'm over that. I'm I'm happy that you can hit 40 home runs, but I hate that you can't hit but, over 200. But, 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 <laughs> Pete, 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 Pete. I, in general, I agree with you, right? Like if we're just talking about a generic baseball player, yeah. This Met lineup, and I think we really felt it in the Atlanta series where the Mets were getting hits in the Atlanta series, but they weren't hitting enough home runs, and that translates to runs. They need power. Now, you want to just assume it's coming from Francisco Alvarez. Fine. Why are we even having this conversation? But if you want to add a player, then a guy like Duval, who could hit 35 home runs, is more valuable than a guy like Justin Turner, who's a nice hitter and is a better hitter, but is not going to hit 35 or 40 home runs. So I'll, I'll, I'll buy the Duval as a fourth outfielder come off the bench guy, but you still need to get me, I'm sorry, like a J.D. Martinez, because you can't just totally rely on all or nothing. And in those big moments, in those big spots, it's either no one can ever come up with a big hit, whether it's a home run or anything. All right. So, then based I, I on mean, that, based on what you're saying, Justin Turner, I just brought his name up. Justin Turner's a career 290 hitter. Even last year with his numbers way down overall, still at 280. Still hit 13 home runs when he played. I'm viewing Turner as more of a DH than I am as a third baseman. Mets already have a couple of guys playing third with Beatty and Escobar. But you want a pro? You want a guy that doesn't strike out a million times? There you go. I just gave you your guy. You want Justin Turner? <sighs> I don't. I think we've had this conversation before. I don't like bringing back former Mets. <laughs> I'm nervous <laughs> about their track record. Uh, I do like Justin Turner. I don't mind it. It's a it's a weird thing. I think I think I need to rearrange this bench a little bit. That's what it comes down to. I think we need to not say that we need to trade Vogelbach, but rough's gotta go. You need a Duval type of power hitter, and then get me a Turner and a JD Martinez still. Yeah, I think they could use two additions to the 26-man roster position player-wise. Because I, I assume Darren Ruff is gone. I don't factor him in. I assume James McCann is gone. I don't factor him in. Uh, so you're talking about another outfielder, and it could be better than a fourth outfielder. Like, one guy I like, and he's certainly not a fourth outfielder. He's more of a fifth outfielder. And I'm not joking. Is Tim LaCastro. Like, I love adding a really good defender who you can bring in off the bench just to steal a base. I think there's a value to that. You know, late last season, we saw Terrence Gore as a guy just on the roster to come in and steal a base. Le Castro's like that, except he's a little bit better. 
which means he could actually play once in a while. You could actually have him out there. So adding a fourth outfielder like that, and then, yes, the right-handed DH, uh, you know, which really could be a guy who plays any position. A couple of other names I'll throw at you real quick without getting too deep into each one. Andrew McCutcheon. Andrew McCutcheon could fit this. Trey Mancini can fit this. A guy with a history with Buck Showalter. This guy I'm intrigued with, but I lose all versatility with him, is Julie Gurriel. He's 38 years old. He's going to be 39. He's only one year removed from winning the batting title. And last year during the playoffs, you couldn't get him out. So I think Gurriel has something left, and I would be treating him more as a part-time player. Now, his splits in his career are pretty even, so it's not like he just mashes against lefties and he fits perfectly in a platoon. But I think there may be something left with Gurriel. There's another guy who doesn't strike out a lot, doesn't hit that many home runs, so he doesn't really fit kind of the power area, but a damn good hitter. I do love his hair. And he's got great hair. He Uh, does. He does. Luke Voigt, I want nothing to do with. Uh, Nothing to do with him, but I'm mentioning him. Robbie Grossman, a guy the Braves brought in. He's a switch hitter who does a much better job hitting left-hand pitching. So he would sort of fit that fourth outfielder slash stick him in the lineup against a tough lefty. Brian Anderson, the former Marlin who could play third base, can play the outfield. Chad Pinder, who could play all over the place. Those are some of the other guys. And then you think of a trade and you say, okay, well, are there bats that would be available in a trade? And so I come with a trade. I come with a trade idea. All right, here we what go. Do you, what do you got for me? Carlos Carrasco. We've heard the rumblings. We've heard the rumors. Now that the pitching market is starting to be settled, Carrasco's got a lot of value. One-year deal, make it about $15 million. There are teams in baseball that are desperate for pitching. There's a team right now. I can see them right now. They won 83 games last year. They need to add pitching. They have all this money to spend, and no one seems to want their money, and they need to put a veteran at the top of their rotation. Carlos Carrasco fits perfectly, and we walk away with the 28-year-old switch hitting 33 home runs a year ago, Anthony Santander. Now, I think the Mets would have to give up a little bit more. I'd probably have to throw in a prospect, Carrasco Plus, to make a deal like that. But you're talking about a guy that's two years away from free agency. He's coming off a 33 home run season, uh, switch hitter, and gives me pop because they need pop. So why not a guy with 33 home runs? I think it would take more than Carlos Carrasco, but a guy like Anthony Santander would be a pretty good fit too. I actually like Santander a lot. I, I don't see them moving him though. Like I know that they're rebuild they're not rebuilding i know that they want to bring in some talent i know they want to spend money they can't land the free agent but uh i, I can't imagine i think it would take a little bit more than carrasco and you might need a nice prospect to return there but yeah. I, I like that that's a, that that would be sweet we may have the framework though yeah we may have the framework all created uh what's interesting in trying to figure out this lineup and this offense is that How are the New York Mets offensively going to get better from a year ago? That's the common question that people like to ask. Here's what makes me feel good in trying to figure out how this offense can get better. I don't think they have a lot of guys that are coming off of seasons that they can't match. And what I mean by that is, you know, with Aaron Judge, it's easy to say, because it's true, there's no way Aaron Judge is going to have that year again because he had a historic season. Something against Aaron Judge. He went out there and had a season that's almost impossible to match. If I look at the Met lineup from a year ago, where again, they were a top five offense. Facts of the facts. They scored a lot of runs. They were tied for third in the National League. I think they were fifth overall. Who had a season last year that can't be matched again? Pete Alonso? I wouldn't say that. Look at Pete Alonso's numbers. Look at Pete Alonso's numbers throughout his career. Pete Alonso a year ago did not have a career season. He didn't. In fact, a year earlier in 2021, his numbers were very, very similar. Now, the one big difference is RBIs. RBIs are about opportunity. RBIs are about who's on base in front of you. In 2021, in eight less games than last year, Pete Alonso hit three fewer home runs. He had 37. This past season, he had 40. 
His OPS in 2021 was 863. His OPS this past season was 869. Like, I think it's fair to look at what Pete Alonso gave you in 21 and 22 and say that. That's what Pete Alonso can give me in 2023. Because the best year of Pete's career was his rookie season. That was the year he had 53 home runs and had an OPS over 940. I'm not asking for him to do that. What we'd be asking Pete to do is just do what he did last year. And what he did last year was very similar to what he did the year before. So I want to start there. When you look at who's going to be able to do what they did last year and who's going to be able to be better, let's start with the Mets' best offensive player. Pete Alonso did not have a career season. And that's a good thing because that means expecting him to do what he did last year again is very much on the table. Now let's get to Lindor. I'd argue Francisco Lindor statistically last year had like the fourth best year of his career. Was he a lot better than the previous season, his first year with the Mets? Absolutely. His average was up 40 points. The OPS was up. He hit more home runs. And again, the RBIs are the number that's really going to look different. But RBIs has a lot to do. Like I said, guys need to be on base. You need to be clutch. I acknowledge that. But you need guys on base. But when I look at Lindor's numbers last year, and I see 270, and I see a 788 OPS, and I see 26 home runs, and I see you know, 98 runs scored and I see 25 doubles and I look at the rest of his career, Pete, I'm like, damn, he should be better. That's the the, the God honest truth is I look at Lindor's numbers and say, okay, they're fine. I'm not ripping them, but I see seasons like 2019 and 2018 and 2017 in which he was better. So I don't have to look at Lindor's year a year ago and say, wow, we ever going to get that again? We better get that again. No, and you, the thing you got to remember, too, is we're excited as Mets fans for what he did and go, oh, my God, I can't believe we put up those numbers because we've never really had great numbers come from a shortstop position. Like that that, that was record-breaking for a shortstop. What that, that what home runs? I right. Was it RBI, RBI total from shortstop, too? Yeah. No, I don't remember. Yeah. So he could put up a record year for for Mets, but our history has never been that that over the top. So yeah, I mean, I think that he could be better. Same with Alonzo, but there's some other guys that you're about to get to as well that had down years, really down. Years. But that, but that's my point. Like, what always would concern me is if I'm going into a season because again, we're all talking about are they as good as they were last year, right? That's that's the talking point. Are they better? Well, a part of answering that question is evaluating the guys that are going to come back. Are those guys going to be better or are they going to be worse? And the point I'm trying to make right now is that the two best offensive players for the New York Mets a year ago, the two guys the Mets were probably overly reliant on in Alonzo and Lindor are not coming off of career seasons. They had really good seasons, but their track records tell me that those were not the best seasons of their career. So to expect them to do the exact same thing is a reasonable expectation. And by the way, I'm not done yet. Let's get to the batting title, man, Jeff McNeil. Did Jeff McNeil have a career season last year? It's easy off the top to say, well, of course he did, Evan. He had 326. Well, let's put Jeff McNeil's career in perspective. He had and has now been in the major leagues for five seasons. Okay. First year, I know he barely played. He came up midway through the season. Hit 330, by the way. But yeah, only played 63 games. He had one horrific, horrific season. That was 2021. He had 250. He had 679 OPS. He sucked. Like, we acknowledge that. But in 2020, in the 52 games he played, and in 2019, the 133 games he played, Jeff McNeil was... As good, if not better, than he was last year. Jeff McNeil last year, to go along with his 326 average, hit nine home runs, had an 836 OPS, which is right around his career OPS. In 2020, shortened season, had the exact same OPS. In 2019, his breakout season, he had a 916 OPS and hit 23 home runs. So here's my point. If you're agreeing with me that 2021 was an aberration, he's not that bad, the track record of Jeff McNeil says, yeah, he should pretty much do the same thing. May not hit 326, maybe it's 310, 
Maybe the home runs go up a little bit, so a slug goes up a little bit. But Jeff McNeil's numbers would tell me that he's pretty much the same baseball player. And those are the three best hitters that the New York Mets had. Here's the thing with Starling Marte, who had a very solid season when he played. The problem was he didn't play enough. That's the biggest rip on him. He only played 118 games. And by the way, his numbers from last year were down from the previous year. That could be age. It could be the fact he's 33. Or maybe we should just be able to expect that if Starling Marte plays, he's going to put up the same production he gave the Mets a year ago, which was a 290 average, which was 16 home runs, which was an 800 OPS. Those are, the guys I just talked about, the four stalwarts of the Met lineup. The four guys that you knew would be in the lineup every single day. Pete Alonzo, Francisco Lindor, Jeff McNeil, Starling Marte. Now let's get to Brandon Nimmo. Because right, that's the fifth guy. That's the that's another guy who's a stalwart. Really, there are five when you think about it. Nimmo's a tricky one because his numbers last year were right around his career average. Like he is an 800 OPS guy. He is a 270 batting average guy. He is a 15 home run a year guy. So I think everything Brandon Nimmo gave you last year is right about what you'd expect. Here's the caveat with Nimmo, staying healthy. And we talked about that when we did the Brandon Nimmo edition prior to free agency, that 2022 was the first year where he was really healthy. Every other year, he missed a lot of time. And if he misses a lot of time, there's someone else playing center field. And that someone else playing center field is not quite as productive. So that's the question with Nimmo. And look, you could ask that question about anybody. Guys get hurt. It changes all of this. But what I feel good about with this Met lineup is that there's nobody coming off of a career season. And what would worry me about guys coming off career seasons is then I think it's easier to say, oh, man, we really need to improve this lineup because naturally it's going to get worse. Naturally, that guy's not doing this again. Eduardo Escobar sucked until September. Marcana was fine. He was average. Like I mentioned about catcher, it's not possible for the Mets to get less production from catcher than they got a year ago. I'd say the same thing about DH. No matter who they add as a right-handed DH, whether it's someone I want or it's someone Pete wants, to go along with Vogelbach, assuming that's their plan, their production has to be better than a year ago. To go along with Brett Beatty, who will play more, especially if he hits, I do think the Mets have a chance to be a better offense than they were a year ago. And that's with only making a minor addition. Tell me where I'm wrong on this. The only thing is, and I'm not, a lot of people have been criticizing me with my take on the young kids playing more. It's not that I don't want Beatty and Alvarez to see a lot of time. I just see right now that you're right. Escobar, I think, could be a lot better than he was. But ultimately, he could also be a bench player at some point in time if Beatty outplays him. You know, there's a lot of versatility here, but I'd like to stock up a little bit more. I don't trust everybody. We're talking about a lot of health issues, too. Marte, he played usually like, oh, he's in the lineup every day. He really wasn't, though. He played 118 games. He wasn't in the lineup every day. That's a, that, that's a decent amount of chunk that he missed. Same thing in the number we worry about health. So I, I feel like we do need to bulk up a little bit. That fourth outfield, I think, is really coming into huge. Like we're, I, the more I dive into it, I can't rely on McNeil in the outfield. We we it's a possibility, but I think we have to stay away from that. I think we do do need to add the outfield. Um, I'm not scared of the li- the lineup, but why not just go and push it all the way to stretch it out that much more? And you're not going to take away from Alvarez and Beatty that much. You're just not. No, no, I, 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 but I do think there are two bats to add. Like, I agree yes. with you. I mean, there are two bats to add. They, they may not be superstar bats. They may not be guys on 10-year contracts at $300 million. But let's just say, because in Ken Rosenthal's article from a few days ago about Correa, he mentioned specifically Michael Conforto and J.D. Martinez. What if it's those two guys? What if those are the two additions? Conforto comes in to give him outfield depth. And look, if he's the old Michael Conforto, he ends up playing left field. 
and Mark Hanna becomes a bench player, and J.D. Martinez becomes your predominant DH. If those are the two offensive additions, Conforto and J.D. Martinez, to go along with everything else we just talked about, this offense is better than it was last year. It's better. It's better. But I still would prefer to change Conforto to somebody else. I, no, I, a, like, I like okay. Jennifer Castro. Who? My, you're right. I mean, we, we uh, went through some of the names. You want Michael Brantley? Would that make you feel no, better? No, 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 no. The, the, the Castro is not a bad move. I liked it because I like speed. And I, yeah. I, I, Nimmo, we don't see it from Nimmo. Robbie Grossman. I mean, there's, there's a lot of options. And I do think it's going to be two bats. Like, we, we're going to debate here, and we went through all these different possibilities and names. But I do think they're going to add two bats. Um, and to go along with the guys who are already here, and I'm not trying to be sunshiny and happy here. Because I understand that it's impossible to project what guys are going to do next season. All I'm trying to do is be fair based on what guys did last year and look at the production that the Mets got and say, okay, is that realistic to happen again or is that a career season? When the guy has a career season, I'll be the first to tell you, boy, it's going to be tough to expect that again. I don't believe the Mets last year got a career season out of anybody. I think some people are going to say that Alonzo and Lindor, you're not going to get the same out back from. I don't agree, but I know already people think that Alonzo's overrated and, and Lindor is not putting but, up those but numbers. Pete, but Pete, they may end up being right because, again, I can't tell the future. You can't tell the future. But based on Pete Alonzo's career in the major leagues, Pete Alonzo had a very Pete Alonzo year last year. He's had four seasons in the major leagues and that was either his second best or third best of the four. So there's no track record to say, oh, that was a career season. Look at the numbers. The numbers are the numbers. Same thing with Lindor. Unless you just think he he's just not as good anymore. Unless you think he's just declining in his 20s. But based on what they've done, their resumes, they did not have career seasons. It's not even a debate. They did not have career seasons last year. I've I said this already once before. I think that Pete Alonso could have a, a year where he had 60 home runs. I mean, I think it's possible. He's he's got that power. He's that he could be in a groove. He could do it. Listen, he broke the record for for home runs as a rookie. If that's happened, he could e- he could easily go on a tear. And you know so, what's yeah. crazy about that, by the way? What's funny about the whole Pete Alonso thing? Last year, Pete Alonso batted cleanup basically 98% of the season. He batted fourth 150 times, and he had 40 home runs. Do you remember who was protecting him most of the season? Uh, it was Lindor. Bat- oh, was it McC- not McCann? Was it no. McCann? No. No, no. They would never wasn't do the- such a thing. It was, I'm trying. It wasn't a good compliment. That's all I remember. Because McNeil so, was like been sixth. I, I I'll give you the answer, man. There were three guys that came very close to each other in terms of the leaders in batting fifth in protecting Pete Alonso. The guy who finished third was Daniel Vogelbach. He was doing it a lot after the Mets traded for him. So obviously Vogelbach was one. He did it 34 times. Jeff McNeil did it 39 times. But the guy who did it the most was Eduardo Escobar, who did it 41 times. But Mark Canna did it 18 times. Darren Ruff did it 11 times. Tyler Naquin did it four times. Luis Guillerme did it a few times. So to your point about, and I, and I am a believer in protection. So for anyone listening who says, ah, batting protection, that doesn't mean anything. It's overrated, blah, 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 blah. Look, we disagree. What could I tell you? I do think that a guy who led the league in intentional walks, that's Pete Alonso, would have fewer intentional walks if he had a really good guy behind him. I mean, that's just that's just logic. You know what as, I mean? As, as Steve Summers says about Trojans, you don't root for them, you wear them. You need protection. That's why <laughs> J.D. Martinez makes the most, makes a ton of sense. Yes. Listen, I'm not against J.D. Martinez. I just laid out my reasons why there were other options. But hopefully this was informative. Hopefully this helped. And hopefully Billy Epler is listening. Uh, But I am confident they're going to make a move for a bat. So I don't think anyone should be alarmed by that. It may take a while. I mean, it is only mid-December, and a lot of the offseason has occurred. Billy Epler said it. All the heavy lifting is done. It doesn't mean the lifting is done completely. And we'll spend a lot more time on the other aspects of this roster. They can still improve. 
including the bullpen. And finally, I promise you, this Sunday night it will be posted. So Monday morning it will be in your download inbox, wherever you download podcasts. The long-awaited losing a favorite player, losing a legend edition of Rico Bronia. I have gotten tons of emails about it. I'm sifting through them to give everybody a voice and their stories concerning the legendary or non-legendary Met that they were devastated to lose. That will be coming up finally and posted Sunday night into Monday morning. I can promise you that. Uh, you can always email the pod at the Rico B at gmail.com at the Rico B at gmail.com. We will try to get back to everybody, including reading some of the emails on the air the next couple of weeks as we continue through this wonderful off season. Uh, and of course you could tweet us at Evan Roberts, WFN at Pete Hoffman, W at the Hoff WFN. There That's you go. Nailed it. And of course you can listen to Pete with Tiki and Tierney and me with Craig two o'clock during the week on the fan. We appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.